Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. The comedy series This Fool has a powerful sense of place. And that place is a neighborhood in South Central Los Angeles where an odd couple of cousins named Julio and Luis argue and help each other and try to figure out what's next. Both for Luis, who recently got out of prison, and for Julio, who began the series as a rule-following caseworker assigned to help get his cousin back on his feet. Star and co-creator Chris Estrada, who plays Julio, based a lot of the show on his stand-up and the second season has just arrived. I'm Linda Holmes, and today we're talking about the Hulu series This Fool on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a Tempur-Pedic mattress made with a -a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Is it possible to engineer our way out of the climate crisis? Some entrepreneurs want to shoot particles into the stratosphere to combat global warming. Experts say regulations on this technology aren't keeping up. The world of solar geoengineering on the latest episode of The Sunday Story from NPR's Up First podcast. Joining me today is freelance journalist Christina Escobar. She's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of latinamedia.co. Welcome back, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to talk about this show with you. This Fool is now in its second season on Hulu. Chris Estrada developed it based in part on his stand-up. He worked with co-creators Pat Bishop, Jake Wiseman, and Matt Ingebretson, who created the Comedy Central series Corporate. Estrada plays Julio, a fairly straight-laced guy who lives with his mom and grandma in South Central Los Angeles. He works at a nonprofit called Hugs Not Thugs that does rehab with former gang members and people who have been incarcerated. When Julio's cousin Luis, played by Frankie Quinones, gets out of prison, he comes to live with Julio and also becomes a client at Hugs Not Thugs, where Julio is his caseworker. Hugs Not Thugs is run by Minister Payne, played by Michael Imperioli. At the end of the first season, Hugs Not Thugs went under just after Luis graduated. So in the second season, we find Julio out of work and Luis now working as a security guard at a men's store. And Luis even has an interest in a woman named Ruby, played by Ivana Rojas. This season finds the guys trying to find a new direction for their lives, perhaps with the help of their old mentor, Minister Payne. Both seasons of This Fool are streaming on Hulu. Christina, you are really eager to talk about this show, and I am really eager to hear you talk about it. What's your bottom line on This Fool? It's just funny. There's a lot of really strong humor in the show. You know, when I 
first started watching the first season, I watched the pilot and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to hate this show. So rarely do we get Latino shows and it was so masculine and so sophomoric. I was like, this is going to be terrible. I'm not going to be able to write about it. What am I going to do? But the longer I watched it, the smarter and funnier to me it got. It still leans on those jokes. Like there are plenty of um, penis-sized jokes in this one. There's, yes, there are. <laughs> it's a recurring theme. Um, but there's a lot of like silly adolescent type humor. But there's also really smart social critique. There's really hilarious depictions of what it is to be Mexican-American, Chicano of Latinidad that literally had me cackling while I was watching it by myself. And I guess I just really feel like Chris Estrada has a unique voice that we don't really see. It is pretty rare to see working class people tell their own stories on TV. It's even more rare for them to be Latino and then to be so deeply rooted in his particular experience. I just, I think it's a pretty fun and unique show that really doesn't feel like anything else. Yeah. I really think the performances on this particular show are probably my favorite thing about it. I think you know, there's a an interview that Estrada did with with Jesse Thorne on the podcast Bullseye, and they talked about his desire not to have these necessarily be like nice people. And he talks about how I wasn't really going for them to be really pleasant. I wasn't trying to make Ted Lasso is one of the <laughs> things he said. And I think that one of the ways that I was able to kind of key into parts of this show were to understand that those performances are really carefully calibrated to try to walk directly on that line between a person who is like kind of, you know, unpleasant, but still kind of rootable in a way. Because I, I think there's no question they're not meant to be nice people, but you are kind of meant to want good things for them. Well, You don't necessarily want their wishes to come true. You want them to change and be better. (laughs) Like, they're bad. Absolutely. They're self-sabotaging and you're rooting for them to, like, for them to change, right? So it's like, yeah, there is a dislikable part, but it's not so much that they're not likable as that they, like, they need to be, like, pushed to change and be better and grow. And the show does challenge them in a good way. Yeah. Gives you some hope on that front. Yeah. I think it was so interesting to me to hear you say that this pilot was sort of off-putting to you because it was off-putting to me, too. And I really was concerned about whether – obviously, I did a lot of interrogating that reaction, if I can put it that way. And I did think about, you know – It is so much more common for me to see elements of my experience represented, as you're saying, like, those people on Friends really, you know, had (laughs) elements of their experience that were familiar to me. So I did do a lot of interrogating that reaction. And I think what I eventually came up with was, like, part of it is certainly the same stuff that you were talking about, that it is very, as you said, very masculine and kind of juvenile. But I also realized I am a person where... The comedy of intense conflict and people whose love language is sort of yelling at each other and swearing at each other is super, super beloved. It is a comedy staple. And what it reminded me of was the fact that I've never been uh, and it's always sunny in Philadelphia person. Mm. I mean, I think the people on that show are more dislikable probably than these people. Yeah. But it is a very like intense people's as I said, love language is kind of yelling at each other and sort of saying what I would consider to be horrible things to each other. And so it's just a pure, my taste in comedy doesn't necessarily run to that. But the more I watched this show, the more I was able to understand like how, I think how really carefully calibrated those performances from 
Estrada, but also from Quinones and from Michael Imperioli and from everybody, they're really trying to land on a very, very small target, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think they hit it. I think the first season, I would describe this structure as like a reverse onion. Like you start with the nugget and then it like layers, 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 layers on top. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the structure of it, I felt like was really beautiful until you end with this like damn the rich type of critique, this like very strong uh, <laughs> class analysis with um, Fred Armiston. And I thought that that really worked. It was funny, just like gutturally funny and how it played out and how it worked. But then also it showed as the show went on and the characters became less types and more people or at least more complex, that it got more interesting. It had more to say. And it really felt like a very smart and well-constructed show. Yeah. With the second season, it doesn't have that super strong structure. It kind of meanders a little bit. Yeah. There's not too much of a plot. And what plot there is, I think, kind of starts in like episode four of the 10 episode arc. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as with so many shows now, you do get one episode in the second season where they kind of just go off of the main thrust of the story and go spend time with Julio's mom as she's retiring, which on the one hand, like, it's a fun story. Lois Smith is in that episode. Lois Smith is always great and fun to watch. But, like, I did feel like that came at a moment when I sort of wanted them to be like, no, I'm into what the guys are doing. Like, I don't want the departure episode right now. <laughs> and so I did feel like the structure of the second season had maybe a few more kind of quirks to it that I wasn't as sure were entirely working. It's a show that's like 50% episodic and 50% serialized. It's like it does have ongoing stories, but it also like each episode is a little, this is the episode where, you know, there's a competing coffee shop and so it is like a combination of those things. And I think the serialized elements maybe in the second season held together a little less well for me. One thing I do want to talk to you about, though, is as we mentioned in the intro, I feel like this is such an L.A. show. And I definitely often had the feeling that like as a non-L.A. person that I was missing some of its charms. That definitely could be. So one of the things that I noted as someone who doesn't live in L.A. but did live there for a long time and my family is from there, there's a moment where they do a montage of Los Angeles and they play Randy Newman's I Love L.A. song. Yes, they do. And that's what they play at Dodger games, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which like maybe if you don't live there, if you don't go there, you don't know. But like Dodger games are like a Latino mainstay of the city. That's our team. We show out, we show up. It's a huge part of it. And so to see that and then to have the montage be not, there's no Rodeo Drive, there's no big palm trees and blue skies. It's instead this part of LA that usually doesn't make it to yeah. the screens, right? It's more of the hard scrabble neighborhoods um, with like the signs in multiple languages hand painted and that sort of thing. I thought was a really smart way to like, not to necessarily like give one to the city, but to show like a different part of the city and what it is to really live there and to be the people who make the city function and who make it live and breathe and how it feels really different for the vast majority of Los Angeles of Angelino inhabitants. Yeah. And I, I think the attention that's given to constructing the neighborhood that Julio and Luis live in, the attention that's given to building that neighborhood is really admirable. And one of the episodes that I enjoyed the most and think is kind of the funniest is the episode in which a rooster 
sort of upsets the balance of the neighborhood mm-hmm. um, because naturally roosters are loud. And there are so many complex dynamics among neighbors introduced in that episode that I really love that little like neighborhood story. I loved it too. And you know, there aren't a lot of Latino stories. There aren't a lot of specific Mexican-American stories. And generally, when we get Mexican-American stories in Los Angeles, they're in East L.A. The vast majority is Latino. Chris Estrada, I got to interview him for season one before the strikes. And he said, you know, he didn't grow up in one of those neighborhoods. He grew up in a mixed neighborhood, which is mm-hmm. actually where my family is from as well. And he grew up in a neighborhood that was black and Latino and, uh, you know, other folks. And that he wanted to show that as a big part of what it is to live in Los Angeles as well. And I thought that episode captured a lot of the realness of that, of how people relate, of how they don't relate. Um, The Spanish in that episode is hilarious. (laughs) Who speaks it? Who doesn't? How well? But the racial relations are also hilarious, but specific, right? Really specific to being neighbors, to being neighbors in a working class neighborhood, but one where everyone has like their own houses. Like I felt like he did a really smart job of sort of showing something that was part of his experience, making it bigger, but keeping it also specific. It's a little gem of an episode. It's the one that opens the season. And I thought it really laid a nice groundwork, even if it didn't really set up any plot. Absolutely. I think it really captures something about how people feel about their house and their lawn and their neighborhood and their peace and quiet when they feel that this is something that's a really big and important part of my life and family. For sure. I mean, I think like the word community gets thrown around a lot, but you actually get a sense of the community and it doesn't feel romanticized, but it also doesn't feel demonized either, right? Like most of the portrayals I feel like we've gotten about South Central Los Angeles are like hellscape, right? fire and brimstone, terrible. And this is not that, but it's not like heroes either. These are regular folks trying to live their life, trying to make peace with their neighbors, trying to like get along, but who also know each other, who pay attention to each other, who care might be too big of a word, but who are like broadly <laughs> looking out for the other person and are aware. But that's and that's what I mean. Like they're invested. There is an investment in the neighborhood yeah. that I enjoy watching a lot. No, it was good. No, it was good. Yeah. I want to ask you how you feel about the Michael Imperioli character, because having watched Michael Imperioli on The Sopranos and on for a while, he was on Law and & Order and a while ago. And he's done, don't get me wrong, he's done a ton of things and he's done other comedic things. But I find him so funny and odd in this show, playing this guy who sort of runs, as we find him at the beginning, runs this nonprofit, really cares about all these guys, but kind of eventually they unfold him to be very, very weird. And I'm curious about how you feel about that character. I have had a whole career in nonprofits in addition to my journalism stuff. And there is a lot of really strong nonprofit jokes, Uh Um, particularly in the first season. You know, in the second season, they're moving to a for-profit model. But there's still a lot of really, I thought, hilarious bits. And I felt like he was really well casted, partly because – Julio and Luis are also really weird dudes. Like, they're <laughs> they're strange. Yes. They're strange in their mannerisms. They're particular. They're not, I would say, invested in being, like, cool or normal. They're sort of past that stage of life, but also doesn't seem like something that particularly for Julio as our main character and kind of our perspective has ever been of interest to him. So I feel like Minister Payne is a strong character. 
I felt like his arc worked a little bit better in season one, mostly because the plot just worked better than in season two. Yeah. But they still give him some, like, good growth and some good stuff to do. And when they're sort of doing the getting the gang back together episode and he comes to his realization, it is very funny. Yeah, it is. I was so interested in something that you were saying about Julio and Luis being weird dudes. And I I agree so much with that. And it made me think about the fact that one of my issues with the first couple of episodes is between the way that Luis is behaving, the way that Julio's mom and grandma are behaving, and the way that his girlfriend behaves at the time, as of the beginning of the show, his girlfriend. I felt like, is this a show about, like, a nice man just getting besieged <laughs> by bullies, you know? But I did have that feeling of, like, is that the dynamic? Is this show just, like, watch this nice man get picked on by all these really <laughs> nasty people who are mad at him all the time? But as it develops, like, he becomes, I think, significantly more complicated. And you get to that moment where you're like, yeah, he's not that nice, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he is not that nice. And you actually see that if you've watched any of Chris Estrada's stand-up, that he sort of plays with some of those concepts. Yeah, which I hadn't. Yeah. Um, and there, it's good. I feel like he does a good job of it and his character develops. And I also think one of the really strengths of season two is that the people around him develop. I felt like we got a really good sense of who he is and maybe a little bit of who Luis is in the first season. But in the second season, it's a much more full world and there are more women characters. There are more women characters with more interesting things to do. Mm -hmm. um, Michelle Ortiz as Maggie is the on-again, off-again girlfriend, gets like her own arc, really, where we get to see who she is outside of her relationship with Julio and I thought that bit was hilarious as well, where she's bringing the difficult and also causes the mayhem in a way that I don't think we see a lot of women characters often get to do yeah, and still be someone you root for, right, to your earlier point. And so in some ways, the second season is less about Julio because he's had so much development in the first season and more about... Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Yeah, more about the development of the world, which is fun to see, like, even though... In most other shows that I've seen that have had that, I would say, pretty masculine, pretty sophomoric perspective, I, I don't like that generally, although I've talked to right. some, some dudes who do like it. I know that's a personal preference, but yeah. in this show, I think they sort of make it all work by having it be for a purpose more than just like a stupid laugh. Like the stupid laughs build to a more meaningful, I don't want to say poignant, but like incisive laugh. Yeah. I think what I appreciate the most about this show is actually related to what made it like not necessarily my exact speed, which is that it does have such a specificity, not just the specificity of place and all of that, but it does have such a particular tone. And I think as you're saying, it comes from Estrada's stand up and, you know, his approach that, as I said, that he was describing as like not trying to have the people be that nice. It has such a particular kind of idiosyncratic feel to it. And that's, as you were saying, like, that's what you really want is you really want singular voices to be able to have an opportunity to tell stories. I think that's ultimately where I come down on this show, even though I still have a little bit of that, like, shows where there's a lot of like insult comedy between people tend to make me kind of, I don't know, they make me tense. It's the same reason I've never been a person who watches It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And so I felt when I came into this, like, everybody is kind of yelling at each other and insulting each other. And and it just makes me it just makes me tense. <laughs> um, and even if I react to it that way, it's like, yeah, but 
you want people to have their really particular tone and style and voice. And that's what I super appreciate about this show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I will say I'm Chicana and that sort of teasing love, maybe, you know, it is perhaps too extreme because this is a sitcom, but that is definitely part of La Cultura. It's part of how we relate and act with each other. This is one of the things I thought about. I thought about, like, I know this is all. Um, And I will also say, watching it, one of the things I noted is there's, in both seasons, there's a lot of really, I think, funny, just like Latino stuff. And I'm sort of curious how it lands to people outside of the community. Like, the moment that has stuck with me the most was there's a part where our main character is being held hostage in a convenience store, and his mom calls He answers the call. He's trying to explain to her what happens, and he doesn't know the word hostage in Spanish. And he crowdsources it, and nobody else knows the word hostage in Spanish. Hey, how do you guys say hostage in Spanish? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, soy un hostage? I was, like, dying with laughter. It was so funny to me. The experience of not knowing a word, even in a clutch situation, of not knowing how to handle it, of needing to tell your mom what, that you're being held in a hostage situation, of having that type of, like, constant contact relationship, just the whole bit to me. And there, there's a lot of funny bits in that part. But that particular moment really encapsulated the show for me and what was so, so funny about it. Yeah, and I definitely clocked obviously not in the same way as you but i there are recurring jokes around mm-hmm. spanish and as you mentioned earlier kind of like who speaks it who doesn't speak it how well they speak it there's a comfort around making those jokes that you wouldn't get if it wasn't really coming from a place of knowing mm-hmm. yeah it definitely like they were in jokes a little bit right right exactly exactly i think they find a great balance where those jokes certainly make sense to me and are funny to me, but they're extra funny to you. (laughs) And I think that's sort of, you know, that's a lovely place to land. And I enjoyed those elements a lot, too. Mm -hmm. Well, we want to know what you think about this school. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Christina Escobar, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much again for having me, Linda. This episode is produced by Hafsa Fathima and Mike Katsif and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you... If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.